The following content is brought to you by Will Harris, Andy Beach, and Paul Boyer. Now to the California Congresswoman facing an ethics investigation for an alleged relationship with one of her staffers on Capitol Hill. The rising star in the Democratic Party, Katie Hill, denies the allegations but admits to a relationship with a young campaign staff. Freshman Katie Hill just announced she is resigning amid a bizarre scandal involving racy photos and an alleged affair with a congressional staffer. She just tweeted this. It is with a broken heart that today I announce my resignation from Congress. This is the last speech that I will give from this floor as a member of Congress. I wasn't ready for my time here to come to an end so soon. We will not stand down. We will not be broken. We will not be silenced. We will rise. Thank you, and I yield the balance of my time for now, but not forever. There's a special election Tuesday in the 25th Congressional District of California. Democrat Assemblywoman Christy Smith is running against former Navy fighter pilot Mike Garcia, the Republican, to fill out the term of Katie Hill. When President Trump endorsed the Republican candidate Garcia, she and her campaign leapt on that believing, I think correctly, that Trump's unpopularity in that district would probably do Garcia more harm than good. Well, amid this pandemic, we had a special election here in Southern California today. The Garcia, a Republican, currently leads with a little bit more than 50, about 56% of the vote. Democrat Christy Smith, 44%. The winner of today's special election will only serve a remainder of Hill's term. Both candidates will then face off in the November election to determine who will ultimately serve a full term. Gentlemen, welcome, welcome, welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast where we actually have politics to talk about. Oh, oh my God. Like, like manna from heaven, it falls for me to bring to you. There was an actual election and it had an unexpected result. And it happened because of a sex scandal. Oh, I'm so happy. What does it mean for November? You know, in a bygone era, I probably would have sat around and said, I'm Dustin Robert Young. You can't take a low turnout special election and pretend that it has national consequences. Forget that guy. That guy is dead. He died of coronavirus. We're going to pretend that it has national consequences because I have something to talk about and it's not about virology. For the record, we are going to talk about virology a little bit later, although it's about 1919 and a story that I'm shocked I had not heard of. And it is very relevant considering the fact that many people in the White House have now tested positive for COVID-19. There is a precedent to this, and it is shocking. 
We also have a great interview coming up with Cindy Cohen of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. If you've never heard of this organization, they have been fighting on the front lines of digital civil liberties for decades. In fact, they just turned 30 this year. We talk about all the challenges that COVID is bringing to the forefront when it comes to technology and why you should be questioning some of the solutions that are being proposed even right now. But first, ooh, let's talk about California 25. All right, let's clean up a little factual stuff. Mike Garcia did not defeat Christy Smith last night, technically. Because this was a heavy mail-in ballot election in California, all mail-in ballots that are postmarked on election day are counted. So although it seems as if this is a very heavy lead for Mike Garcia, 56% to 44%, technically we cannot say that Mike Garcia is the winner yet. Although, uh, Zach Montalero of Politico pointed out that if you read some of the verbiage in the Christy Smith campaign's comments last night, it it doesn't seem like they expect that this is something that is going to flip and they are focusing on November because that's when they're going to run this race again. We'll get to that in a second. First, let's go ahead and look at the repercussions here. Remember that Donald Trump, President of the United States, I don't know if you heard of him, he has railed against mail-in voting. So God help Christy Smith if she gets enough mail-in votes to overturn her deficit against Mike Garcia. This will be exhibit A for mail vote fraud from the Republicans if indeed she eliminates this gap. Let's put a pin in that and understand what this does and doesn't mean. Obviously, Katie Hill, rising star in the Democratic Party, big, ugly scandal that involves her and a thruple with a old campaign staffer, rumors that she was in an affair with a current congressional staffer, posts on a, a wife-swapping Reddit forum, like just a lot of nasty stuff. It, it seems she had a, a big divorce with her husband, the husband uh, was just spilling all the tea all over the place. Unfortunately, it it brings up the fact that she might be in an inappropriate relationship with a staffer. She's got a GTFO. She's not happy about it, for the record. So now we run this special election. And this seat becomes coveted. Remember, this is the seat that Sink Younger of the uh, Young Turks was, you know, looking to run. Four. This became a little famous. I believe Papadopoulos was uh, looking to run for this seat. And here we go. We settle on Mike Garcia and Christy Smith. Not only did Mike Garcia get a national endorsement in the president of the United States, but Christy Smith got the litany, the galaxy of stars for the Democratic Party. 
Obama, Hillary, Dianne Feinstein, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Kirsten Gillibrand, Nancy Pelosi, Adam Schiff, and the list goes on and on and on. Now, it is curious to see what vectors might go into this. Because let me also say this about the the California 25. It has not been held by a Republican since 1993, and Hillary Clinton won it by 50 points in 2016. This has become a solid blue district, one that launched a millennial progressive superstar in Katie Hill before she self-destructed in Congress. What does this mean for 2020? Well, despite the fact that I am going to spend more time on this than I would otherwise, I, I can't say for sure that it really means anything. It is a very curious and interesting data point that we will eventually put into a much larger graph. But if we're going to guess, you can guess that there are, there might be an animating factor to COVID. The fact that this has become a political issue is uh, a, a turning out conservative votes, possibly. There might be an enthusiasm gap between the Democrats and the Republicans right now. And more specifically, when it comes to mail-in ballots, if Republicans do believe that this is a rigged system, then they might be just more on the ball when it comes to voting because they believe that they're going to have to win by a large enough margin to uh, make up for any chicanery from the Democratic machine. Could the suspicion over mail-in voting be an advantage for Republicans going into November. That is an interesting idea. Now, will this even matter in California 25 come November? Well, I mean, add that to one of the subplots that we we may or may not even pay attention to by the time that that rolls around. Obviously, we're going to have bigger fish to fry in the fall. But I want to end on this. I think Katie Hill should run. I think Katie Hill. Christy, look, you did a great job. You came close. Step aside. Katie Hill should run again for her seat. I'm being serious. She still denies that she slept with the staffer, right? But she resigned, so. But it doesn't matter. Democratic Party's different now. Everyone circled the wagon. Kirsten Gillibrand, who ran Al Franken out of the Senate because of of, of, uh, uh, claims against him, is backing Joe Biden against Tara Reid. The Democrats are circling the wagons these days. If I'm Katie Hill, I say, you want to know what? I'm back. I'm back. So circle the wagons around me or look like total hypocrites. I think she should run. Love it or hate it. I was in a consensual relationship. I ain't uh, uh, mad at it. Uh, uh, I had an ugly divorce. 
those happen. That ain't the first congressperson to have an ugly divorce. She deserves it. We deserve it. I deserve it. I deserve to see a good election. Oh, that would be a good one. Oh, that'd be a good election. Katie, we need you, Katie. This week, the White House was put on edge when a personal valet for the president and an aide to the vice president both tested positive for COVID-19. In response, the White House mandated all staff wear masks and sit at an appropriately socially distanced six feet apart from each other. Vice President Pence is, in an abundance of caution, staying away from the president for the time being. The uptick in positive tests coincides with a jump in D.C. cases in general. But even should President Trump get sick with the coronavirus, he would not be the first president to succumb to a pandemic. And he almost certainly would be able to recover from it under less scrutiny than one predecessor, Woodrow Wilson. The year is 1918, and not unlike today, a pandemic has hit D.C., and it's taken everyone out. The president's secretary gets sick in October, and a few months later, in January of 1919, two sheep who grazed the White House lawn during World War I so they could save manpower because there was a war on and all, they got sick too! The sheep did! Thankfully, they recovered quickly. Here is the text from a public flyer that was there to illustrate how people could appropriately save themselves from the 1918 flu. Cover each cough and sneeze with a handkerchief. Spread by contact, so avoid crowds. If possible, walk to work. Do not spit on the floor or sidewalk. Do not use common drinking cups or common towels. Avoid excessive fatigue. I feel like we are all doing our best to avoid excessive fatigue these days. If taken ill, go to bed and send for a doctor. And uh, the above applies to all colds, bronchitis, pneumonia, and tuberculosis. As you can see, a lot hasn't changed. Uh, there, there's not a lot of specific spelling out of how far we're supposed to be from each other. But in general, the rules are the rules are the rules. But beyond the illness... Recovery was on the world's tongue, not because of the pandemic, but because of World War I. Fighting had stopped in November 1918, but a comprehensive peace plan had yet to be negotiated. That would be the role of the Paris Peace Conference, beginning in January 1919 when France, the United States, the United Kingdom, and Italy would meet to discuss peace in Europe, both currently and going forward. Here's the problem. Traveling to Paris for the negotiations would put everybody in the White House and the leadership for the other countries at more risk to contract that flu. During travel for the conference, several Secret Service members, Chief Usher Irvin Ike Hoover, and Charles Swem, Wilson's stenographer, got sick. Wilson's eldest daughter, Margaret, also fell ill. And so, in April 1919, 
the sickness came for the big man. Quote, Rear Admiral Kerry T. Grayson, personal physician to the president. These past two weeks have certainly been strenuous days for me. The president was suddenly taken violently sick with the influenza at a time when the whole of civilization seemed to be in the balance. End quote. Now, it was never revealed to the public that Wilson was that sick, but certainly it was on the radar of all the other members who were about to sign this treaty. Wilson was holding up the final signing. In fact, his illness held up debatings on some of the biggest issues of that treaty, including the League of Nations and German reparation. Obviously, Wilson gets better. And it's hard to imagine how the world would have changed if we would have had to replace the head of state of the United States of America in the middle of a negotiation as sensitive as this because he died of a pandemic. But I gotta tell you, discovering this yesterday was kind of eye-opening to me. I mean, how long have we been making content under these constraints? How long have we had to understand the framework of how this has affected us in the past? We had a head of state that was barely able to talk or stand upright, according to his medical professionals. And I hadn't heard anything about it. It makes you wonder what sort of falls through the cracks. For example, as I'm recording this, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, has announced that leagues are allowed to play their games in the Sunshine State during this COVID thing. This is likely in response to an NBA proposal to finish out their season and play the playoffs on courts in Disney World, which is going to be easy to quarantine since the theme parks aren't open and they've got enough facilities and hotel rooms for pretty much anything you could want. And to me, that seems kind of reasonable. You know, there's enough space, there's enough accommodations, and you've got pretty much anything that you could want. Obviously, you'd have to quarantine a lot of people. Everybody would be living in a little mini biodome for about two months. But if you're going to do it, that seems okay. Compare that to the 1919 Stanley Cup Finals. Indeed, a contest between the Pacific Coast Hockey Association champion Seattle Metropolitans playing against the National Hockey League's champion, Montreal Canadiens. Who won? The Spanish Flu. Indeed, no winner was declared for the 1919 Stanley Cup Finals because the Canadiens got the Spanish Flu. Furthermore, it led to the death of Joe Hall, a Canadiens defenseman. For all the talk about sports during the age of a pandemic, I had not heard that the Stanley Cup finals had been canceled because one of the players died. In fact, to this day, on the Stanley Cup itself, 
there is a ring that states 1919 Montreal Canadiens Seattle Metropolitan Series not completed. Did you hear the news? 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 Kamala Harris is now the front runner to be Joe Biden's vice president. Now, you would have known that on Monday if you got our PX3 Extra episodes. That's available at the $3 level at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. But in celebration of that, I'm going to do another giveaway because I forgot to give away one of our Kamala Harris signs. So, Campaign Undertaker, he's back. New giveaway. If you write GONG, G-O-N-G, on this very post at TakePoliticsSeriously.com, you will win, free of charge, a Kamala Harris sign. It's Kamala for the people. It was used at the Iowa State Fair last summer. You have your chance to get it if you go ahead to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. And one more thank you. Guys, uh, uh, this has been the first time that we've seen the Patreon kind of stall a little bit, and I understand why. There's, you know, a little bit of economic unrest going on. But here's what I want you to know. The fact that it has stalled is a gift. That means that there are so many of you that are still supporting this show, and we will make it over the summit of 1,000 patrons. I, I know it's, it's, it's a crazy goal, and it might take a while, but we will do it, and we're going to do it together. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you head. We've got levels at the $1 level, Big Tent. If you want to get your name read with the, with, with, with the Dear Martha violin at the beginning, well, you can do that too. Give a lot of money. That's fine. What we're looking for is the patrons, and I want to thank everybody who's already made that decision. Again, TakePoliticsSeriously.com. My guest today is Cindy Cohen. She is the executive director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. You can find out more information about them at EFF.org, at EFF on Twitter, at EFF on Facebook, and at EFF.org, E-F-F-O-R-G, on Instagram. Very excited to speak with her. I've been a fan of this organization for a very, very, very long time. They are an organization that's been on the front lines of a lot of these issues for three decades now. And I think that their next 10 years might be their most impactful. But let's ask Cindy about it. Welcome to the show, Cindy. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Oh, no, this is this is right up my wheelhouse. I'm very, very excited to talk to you about this because I think that this is probably the biggest issue that we are going to be talking about. And in fact, there was breaking news literally uh, as uh, I was setting up for this interview in the Senate with a, a motion to surveil more web traffic. But civil liberties in the age of covid uh, is is what we are going to talk about. But from your perspective, what is the front lines of what we are going to be dealing with as the government tries to not only rebound from this pandemic, but also prepare for the next one? Well, I think that 
<clears throat> on the civil liberties front, at least the digital civil liberties front, the, the question is going to be um, really centered around how much, you know, surveillance and how much privacy um, we're going to have as the government takes the steps it, it, it's taking in the name of um, uh, protecting us against, uh, you know, the coronavirus. And, you know, we, we've already seen a lot of what I, what I call COVID washing, you know, yes. companies that had really bad, you know, spying on new business models, trying to <laughs> rebrand themselves to partner with government and, you know, spy on you for the public good now. Um, and I think it's really, really important that we be extremely careful and thoughtful about the steps that we take here. And, and, and I say that because, you know, I, I was at EFF after September 11th, and I remember, you know, a whole lot of things being rolled out publicly and then a longer list of things being rolled out secretly that were said that they were just going to be in, you know, because of the current threat. And here yeah. we are 20 years later, and many of them have proven to be no, not at all effective in protecting us, but yet we still can't dislodge them. And a, a classic example of that is the, is the telephone records collection. You know, the government collected everybody's telephone records for well over a decade, and they didn't solve a single terrorism uh, investigation with them. They were, they were useless. But yet they all got collected, they all got analyzed, and they all got kept. And it wasn't until the rest of us found out about it that we were even able to scale it back, and we still haven't been able to kill it. So we have to be very careful. And, and as a result of that, we've kind of got a, a three-part test that we think about when we think about something that gets you know, proposed as helping, uh, as using our data to try to help keep us safe from COVID. Um, I'm happy. The, oh, the three-part... Yeah. No, no, no. Go, go. Sorry, sorry. I was just sitting in rapt attention. You were singing my song okay, here, Sydney, good. so please go. I didn't want to... I realized I was going to talk it on with No, that. no, no, no. So, please, please, please. The floor is yours. <laughs> okay. So, so the three things we look at are, first, is it effective? Um, you know, will this thing actually work? And, and that actually knocks out a whole bunch of things that people are proposing to do for COVID mm -hmm. um, that really aren't going to make us any safer. And again, the, 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 the easiest example for people to see about this was the telephone records collection after September 11th. Um, but so, you know, for, for, for some of the location tracking apps, for instance, you know, there were the, the efforts were trying to use things like GPS to try to tell who you were close to. Well, GPS doesn't have, it, it, it's not at all um, precise enough to tell whether you were six feet from somebody. Yeah. Um, so a lot of those got knocked out just as a technical matter. They weren't going to be effective to do the thing that people wanted to do. Um, now people have shifted and many of the things they're looking at are looking at Bluetooth. Well, Bluetooth might be a little more effective, but Bluetooth still can't tell what floor you're on. Um, yeah. It, it really can't tell whether somebody who passes you has on full PPE or no PPE. Yeah. Um, well, here, hold on. It, but, so, but, so let me, let me, let me, let me, better. yeah. Let, yeah. Let, let, let me pause you right there just so I can reset here for the audience because uh, uh, many are very technically savvy, but I do want to reset just so people get a fuller context of exactly what you're talking about. Obviously with COVID uh, uh, here, we are now thinking far more about uh, the idea of contact tracing. So if you have the, if you have the disease, uh, when you find out you have the disease, specifically in this case, which has a very long asymptomatic 
uh, cycle, right? So now the the yeah. theoretically the best thing that you could do is go back and tell everybody that you were around that this was the case. And in some places, uh, like China, India, they have mandated that people have GPS tracking on their phones because theoretically that could be the technical solution. But as Cindy pointed out, it's not really all that accurate as anybody who's tried to use GPS for walking directions in a big city will tell you as your dot just kind of floats uh, between uh, blocks. It's not uh, accurate. The next step, and this is something that has been backed by Apple and Google, is a Bluetooth system which uh, technically would be constantly pinging other uh, devices with Bluetooth. And so that way, when you found out you had the disease, you could hit a button and now everybody else that was pinged over the last two weeks would now know automatically that they were in uh, a contact with somebody and they can go get tested. But you are saying with yep. Bluetooth, even then... It has no idea whether or not you're on the same floor. It has no idea whether or not the other person was in a full hazmat suit. Right. And so it, it's better. And there might be things that we could do with Bluetooth, but it's just important that we start first with efficacy, right? Is it effective? And then the second step is, um, is it just too invasive to our rights to do, even if it might have some marginal benefit? And, and for us, um, you know, one thing that's clearly in that category is facial recognition, Right. Facial recognition uh, technology, first of all, it has real efficacy concerns and I don't I, you know, I don't want to pass by them. But but even if even if it was marginally effective, it's really, really dangerous in a self-governing democracy to have the government have access to all the people you ever talk to. Um, and and anything you might do for political organizing where, you know, we're in a political we're heading into a political season. It's very dangerous um, to do this. And you know this because dictators always want that kind of surveillance power, right? <laughs> they want to know who's organizing the opposition. Like you don't have to you don't have to be a, you know, computer, you know, a political scientist to see how important it is that, you know, if you're in power, you want to know who all the people are who are trying to take power away from you. And that if you're trying to, to take power away from somebody, having a, a, a safe place for you to have those conversations without the government knowing it's vital. So that's the second step. Is it just too too worrisome from a democracy um, and civil liberties matter to do it, even if it might give us some benefit? And then the third thing is, if we pass those two tests, what are the guardrails? What are the things that we know we need to build in from the beginning to make sure that if we're going to roll out with this thing, um, it's going to uh, operate in the way we want to? So, you know, the number one thing for this is build in the time that it's going to end. Don't make these things open ended. You need to build sunset in them. A, yeah, have have, have have sunset provisions. Yeah, and if you don't do that, believe me, they won't end. Um, you you can't kid yourself. Um, the second thing is, what is the bias? How how does this work? So if you've got a system, for instance, that assumes that everybody that that is only tracking the people who have smartphones with the latest software on them you're going to miss at least 20% of, of American society that do, either don't have smart, don't have phones at all or don't have smartphones or don't have currently updated smartphones. And honestly, those people, they're the people right now who are getting coronavirus at a much higher rate than the rest of us. So what are you doing, right? How, yeah. how are you, how, are you actually getting at the people who might need the information, right? The, the people who might need to know that they're at most risk you might be excluding by the very way you're counting it. So what is the bias in, in, in how you're doing this? Um, and then um, there's a bunch of other things about like, you know, what's going to happen to the data? 
Are you collecting more data than you need? How are you going to secure the data? We all have lived through, you know, uh, data breach after data breach after data breach. If you don't have a plan for keeping the data safe, then mm -hmm. you can make people more vulnerable by collecting it than if you didn't. Um, and, you know, and how are you going to stop somebody, say, from 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 hitting the notification to notify everybody like the day before the election? So a whole bunch of people have to self-quarantine when you're really just trying to, to stop them from being able to vote. Or you walk by somebody who's your enemy and you click that and then they have to go through a whole medical process when what you're really doing is just, you know, doxing them or griefing them, which, you know, is, as we say on the Internet, basically, you know, how can how can this tool be used as a weapon um, by a vengeful government or by a vengeful human? And if you aren't doing that kind of thinking, then you again, you may be building something that is going to make people's situations worse, not better. So those are the kinds of what, what we call guardrails. And, and there's a long list of them on EFS website if somebody wants to see in, in more detail. But that's the kind of process we look at for 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 all, you know, a lot of these kind of digital COVID responses. Remember, contact tracing is is not a digital thing, right? Contact yeah. tracing is an old public health thing. The digital gloss on it, even the people who think it's or who are huge evangelists of it, will tell you that at best it's something that is a small addition to what needs to be a manual contact tracing thing. And I I saw some research out of Iceland just yesterday that says that the Icelandic authorities say that their digital contact tracing, which they have a very robust digital contact tracing, marginal at best yeah. in helping them with the strategies because of all the false positives and all the ways in which it's wrong. And so, you know, how much of our societal energy do we want to put towards something that's marginal at best as opposed to, you know, hiring humans to do old school contact tracing, which does work. And that's the biggest thing is that technology isn't magic. It's just another tool that you can use. But if you don't understand it, it's very, very easy if you're trading your civil liberties uh, to have it be abused. And so I, I would like to just really, really quick go back to the uh, well, two things. Number one, just for folks who, who are not aware Stuff like face scanning, very much a, a real world issue now. If you remember any of the pictures from the Hong Kong protest, the reason why there were lasers out there weren't necessarily because they were trying to rave their way to independence, but but rather <laughs> so they could interfere with face scanners that was there that that, that are being employed by the Chinese government. Uh, yep. That being said, the big move now is the Apple and Google-backed contact tracing thing. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. This, at best, is just a, a addition on top of it, and we need to focus more on some of the false positive elements of it. But what has been lauded, at least in some circles, is that the, it is anonymous. So it is pinging everybody. Uh, uh, all the Bluetooth connections are anonymous, and uh, there is no central repos repository of you being the one to ping stuff. What is the EFF's position on that being built in to the OSs of Android and iOS? I mean, I think that 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 Apple and Google really did do listening to the early concerns about this and I think that they have built this. Now remember, this is just an API, an application programming interface. It's not the actual app. Okay. They're, they're building a place for an yeah. app to rest. And so a lot of the questions that are really concerning to us are probably not, they're not the ones that happen at the API level, although some are. A lot of them are, you know, what, what are you going to plug into the hole that Apple and, um, 
and Google have built for you in in their app space. So um, so I think the fact that it's anonymous and that it's decentralized is really good. And, and I think they've done some other good things. Um, um, the proof will be in the pudding about, you know, what kind of apps do roll out to fit into this. We haven't taken, I mean, again, we're, what we're trying to do is to help people think about how to think about it, um, much more so than taking a hard and fast position. And, and there's two reasons for that. One is that I think that um, it's really easy to iterate and change one thing and then change another thing and change another. You're kind of chasing the sunset to try to figure out all the different ways that people are going at this problem. So it's better, I think, for us to, to focus on, you know, what, what would something that, that what would something good look like rather than here's what something good is. Yeah. Um, because there's lots of ways to skin the cat. And the, the second thing is that we really don't have insider information about how this stuff is all working in practice. So we're only kind of able to, to comment on the theory. And so I also don't want to take a, a strong a position for or against any particular technology. You know, my technologists are like, you know, until we can get our hands on it, we yeah. can't tell you whether it's actually going to do what they're saying it's going to do or how that's going to work. And, you know, most of this is, it's, it's nobody's fault, but most of this stuff is too new for us to be able to feel like we can say definitively, um, oh, this is a good thing or this is a bad thing. Uh, they are, you know, we, we appreciate that people want to step in and technical people want to step in to try to help with this. And we're trying to lay out what it is you need to think about if you're going to this. There are other things that are really easy that technical people can do. You know, if you want to help figure out how to build open source ventilators, like that one's pretty easy, right? Yeah. Um, you want to figure out how to use your 3D printer to, to print out uh, repair pieces for ventilators and other medical equipment. Awesome. That's pretty easy. But some of these questions about surveillance technologies, um, and believe me, we haven't even talked about the second thing after COVID, after the, after the contact tracing comes the idea of like, you know, um, immunity passports or immunity licenses. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Let's go. Let's go. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So, so anyway, there's tons of things that technical people can do that don't raise these hard questions. And we really do think that that would be a great place for people to put their energy. But um, the stuff that involves surveillance, is it's going on. Again, there's a lot of companies that were already surveilling all of us who are looking for a really good reason to say that what they're doing was good after all. And so there's a lot of, you know, a lot of money behind trying to make a digital surveillance tool that's mm -hmm. actually useful to the problem. Um, so, the, so again, the, yeah, the other one that I mentioned is this idea, and they, they have different names, but um, uh, kind of immunity passports or, um, or, or, you know, or, or driver's licenses to be able to move around. And, and, and again, we, we, we apply the same three steps to these kinds of apps as yeah. well. And, and, th and th um, this would be if there was some sort of proven way that you could say that you had the disease, you already had antibodies. Now, uh, uh, you know, if there were... Uh, uh, immune only bars or restaurants you could flash some kind of proof that indeed you had it and and now everybody inside that facility could feel at ease that yep, that's the that's idea one. and that's yeah yep that, that's the idea but you know it's going to get real serious real quick right because it's going to be a thing you need to have before you can go to your job it may be the thing you get you know like there's a lot of um uh, so so again, you do the three steps. Is it is it effective? Well, I don't think right now we know whether antibodies actually make you immune. So the first question that has to happen before all of this is like, is it telling anybody anything that's going to make you safer? And I think that we're 
you know, I think there's some good indications that 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 the anti that that we could develop an antibody test, and that having the antibodies may mean that you have a level of immunity at least for maybe a year or two. Um, so there may be a time in which this is effective, but we're not there yet. Um, and the antibody tests are all over the map about whether they're good or not, or reliable or not. Um, and so I think it's important that you know start with efficacy. You can spend a lot of energy building an app that's based on a kind of flawed model of how the medicine works. And you don't want to do that. Um, the second, and, and, you know, they're trying as hard as they can to try to figure this out. Um, uh, the second, then the second thing is, is it just too invasive? And I think that depending on where you're putting checkpoints, it could be just too invasive, right? If you're, if you've got a checkpoint on that, that's going to stop people from being able to vote, then I think it's too invasive to our democracy, even if it might be somewhat helpful. There have to be other ways to try to make sure that people are not spreading the virus other than, you know, a kind of your paper, your papers, please checkpoint. Um, and uh, for certain things, there might be certain things like, you know, do you want to go to my restaurant? I'm not going to let you in the restaurant unless you can show it. That yeah. Those kinds of um, optional things are easy. Ma ma mandatory things are much, much harder. Um, and, and then the third the third, the third area is the guardrails, and um, that's the one where uh, these um, these uh, passports or life, driver's licenses are really, really problematic. Because if we're going to have the police enforcing them, we're, we're, you know, we've we've had a problem in our country where you know driving while black or stop and frisk or lots of these kinds of things where the police have wide discretion to stop random people on the street mm -hmm. get deployed in a very, very discriminatory way. Uh, you know, there's been lawsuits, the cops lose, like these, these are, this is a known thing. And so um, empowering the police to do random checks of people as they're just walking around in the world, I think is, is the bias opportunities there are just way too great. Now that again, that doesn't mean there aren't situations in which it makes sense. But these are the things we need to think about when we're thinking about these kinds of things. Can I ask just a general question about the EFF? Do, do you guys, obviously you do great work online and, and certainly there is a, 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 a massive following uh, for your point of view there. Uh, do you do any traditional lobbying like in DC or, or do you have your eye toward that with a lot of these issues that will be up at the forefront very soon? Oh yeah, we have a, I mean, we're, we're not a lobbying organization. We're we're the kind of charity that can do a certain percentage of lobbying. It's okay. Like, you know, there's a there's a charity. We're five hundred one c three for those of you who know about this stuff. So that means we can do you know um, kind of somewhere between ten to twenty percent of um, of our budget can go towards the kind of lobbying that you're talking about or grassroots lobbying. You know, telling people write your congressman to pass this bill. Yeah. Um, and we we do it. We stay. You know, we're well within the again. This, you know, the, the the organization does lots and lots of legal cases and other things um, but we definitely have um, uh, we have two legislative analysts and they do lobbying we're, we're actually part right now in um, in the federal the new federal bill there's going to be some provisions to try to make broadband more widely acceptable you know uh, um, widely um, available for low-income people and rural people because that's one of the things we've all learned as a result of the COVID crisis mm -hmm. is that Lots of people's broadband sucks and they can't do things like have their kids go to school. 
uh, because of it or do their jobs. And so um, there's a piece of this bill that, that we're very supportive of that will try to free up more money to try to make sure that everybody has access to broadband in their homes now that we're all in our homes trying to do our jobs in school. Um, and uh, in California, for instance, we're very active in uh, the California legislature trying to make sure that California, you know, maintains its lead as the privacy protecting state. Um, and, uh, you know, we keep trying to make it better. And, and um, there's also a broadband for all bill in California that we're very supportive of. We think one of the things that I think all of us have learned as a result of the COVID crisis is how important the Internet is and how yep. useful it can be to trying to keep your life going. And so, this is the right time for government to um, really begin to address the fact that we have two big broadband companies that have made um, real broadband unavailable to huge swaths of our, our communities. And um, we need to move to the place where um, we recognize the truth, which is, you know, access to broadband is really something you need in order to function in society right now. And it, it can't be treated as if it's some kind of a, you know, uh, a luxury for the rich. No, yeah. The, the 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 digital divide is long past the days where it just meant you could download movies off Napster. Uh, uh this is this yeah. is now a fundamental pillar of society and I think this crisis has certainly proven that. Uh Yeah, uh, I mean it's it's in some ways it's the internet day, right? I think a lot of people um uh are really 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 appreciating that we built ourselves a network where everyone can talk to everyone pretty cheaply and easily. Um, and now we need to make that a reality. I think there's also just, and this is going to get a little nerdy, but like, uh, there's a major issue right now with uploads in general. Like, uh, I think even people who are paying a fair amount of money, uh, for, uh, uh, per, you know, that, that can expect a certain amount of uploads now that everybody is uploading their own video, their live video to zoom and, and Slack and teams and, uh, uh, Google meet and stuff like that. I feel like our, our network is really, really, really straining under that. And I think it's, it's something that's going to become more and more of a problem if this becomes more and more permanent. Yeah, but I think that the network isn't straining under it. I think that the business model of the companies is. The, there the we business go. model there we go. sold us. The, the, the network can handle uploads and downloads at the same speed. It's like, it, you know, and, and if not, you we know the things we have to do to build it out to do more of that. Yeah. Right. Broadband to the home, for instance. Right. But um, but I think that what's happened is the duopoly, the two companies that provide us with most most people with their their Internet service have have have, you know, used uh, the upload download difference to try to, you know, basically do price discrimination um, to, to make people charge more for uploads. And now all of us need to upload. And so we yeah. need to, we need to shift that business model because it's not, you know, it's not serving how we need the internet to work now. And for me, I say, hallelujah. I always thought that, you know, trying to make the internet something where we were consumers in the same way we were consumers of television, as opposed to something that's a two-way street where we get to create and not just receive others' creations is one of the great things that the technology can do for us. And so hallelujah, you know, people are really using this time to build creativity, to do their TikToks or whatever videos that they're, <laughs> they're wanting to do. And that's what the internet can do for us because hallelujah i agree uh, uh uh all right so is there anything else that that you have on your radar aside from contact tracing and uh uh the the immunity passports as it uh, as it results to uh where we see the coming battles with uh, a post-covid world well i think 
that um, I, you know, I alluded to this a little bit, but I think there's a lot of creativity going on around um, open access to knowledge, sharing knowledge, not having things all bottled up into proprietary systems. Um, where we see a lot of people doing things. And again, you know, the open source ventilator um, project, um, a lot of work, um, you know, the Internet Archive has uh, tried to make, you know, far more information available so that teachers can use it to teach their kids, uh, you know, um, digital reading, digital access to media, um, because, you know, kids can't go in and get their school books anymore. Um, and um, and can't go into the library and do research. So, you know, making, you know, making libraries really go digital, and that information be freely available for the teachers and other people who need it. Um, you know, people, again, kind of freeing up uh, repair manuals and other kinds of information so people can DIY or, or otherwise help, um, help fix these things. So, you know, some of these, like, um, kind of, again, I think they're business models, but business models based on scarcity of information are looking, I think, more and more like a bad idea for society because, you know, we need to scale up. We need to scale up fast for a lot of medical equipment and personal protective equipment and keeping the knowledge of how to do that and how to do that right, you know, locked up for a price is just not serving society right now. And so um, that's part of where the really exciting stuff goes. And, and you know, I, I think that, um, you know, there are people who are invested in those old school business models who are going to who aren't, aren't liking it. And we're going to start to see some battles around that. You know, if you if you find a, if you have a manual for how to fix, you know, a, a ventilator and you make it public, the ventilator company should not be suing you for copyright infringement. They should be thanking you and supporting you for <laughs> helping make sure that more people can have the benefit. But I'm not sure how that's going to go down. So um, so that's a thing that I think we see uh, as a possibility and we hope doesn't happen. And there's a pledge right now for people who are developing the COVID medicine. This is a little outside of EFF's wheelhouse, but um, uh, for, uh, well, not, not all of it, but it um, is, you know, for people who are developing vaccines or medications to sign an open, uh, uh, an open intellectual property pledge um, so that, you know, people don't end up having to pay their whole life savings in order to get sure. treatments or vaccines. Um, and there's a there's a good pledge that uh, my friend Mark Lemley at Stanford had a little bit to do with that, that they're really pressuring the companies, um, both, you know, again, both the pharmaceutical companies and the other companies who are building some of these things to to sign to make sure that the, you know, most of the you know huge chunk of the money that goes into developing these systems is actually government money. Right. And so we as the people who 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 need the access to it should have more access to uh, the fruits of that labor. Well, Cindy, thank you so much for coming on. I, I really, really uh, think that the EFF, uh, I can't think of another organization that has put in the time and effort for as long as uh, the EFF has in terms of thinking about digital civil liberties and uh, uh, being a voice for uh, not only the uh, citizen, but also the, the consumer, specifically in the issues like we were talking about with upload and stuff like that. And now... I think that you guys are in a very, very interesting position because I do think we are going to get overarching legislation. I do think that we are going to get technological solutions that will be backed by the government. And unlike the Patriot Act, uh, I believe we have a populace that is digitally literate enough to understand how overreaching and how wrong some of these solutions can go if they don't implement some of the common sense stuff that you guys are talking about. So thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on and talking about it. 
Oh, totally my pleasure. And I sure hope you're right. We're certainly going to be there to try to lead the charge, but we do need as many people to make their voices heard as possible. By the way, we are one of the personal things that you know, personal things happen is EFF is turning 30 years old this summer. Our birthday is in, in July and we had a whole huge party planned um, that we're going to have to move. <laughs> Uh, we're going to have to move another thing to do, um, but uh, but it is a, a really, I think, um, an important time, and, and I, I, I really appreciate you recognizing that, you know, we've kind of been in the trenches on this for a long time. We're ready, we're, we're, we're smart, and, you know, we're not babies, so we, we yeah. know how to, how to navigate in this world, and, um, and so we're ready for this challenge. And I think uh, it indeed will present itself sooner rather than later. Uh, Cindy, if people want more information, where can they go? EFF.org. Perfect. Cindy Cohen is the executive director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us, Cindy. Oh, thank you. This was fun. And that'll wrap it up for us today. I want to thank our Titanic $10 tier. Middle-aged Mike, Chad, Dallas Danger Taylor, your boy Craig, Zachy Chan, TroubleFilm.com, Nick, Utah, Jimmy Montana, D-Laser, Captain Bunzo, Frozen Summer, Milk Leg Scoop, Emily, Wolf Glenn 99, Berkeley Steven, The Jen, NH Blumpkin, Robert, Eoxy, J. Milius, Jonathan Scott, Lindsay, Miranda, Nick, Nomadic Terran, Olin and Angela, Richard, Thor, Andrew, Brad, Daily Tech News Show, Darren, and DL. You want to get on their level? Head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. You want to get my opinions? In your email box, five days a week, free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com is where you do that. You want to follow me on Twitter at Justin R. Young. On Instagram, the same thing, Justin R. Young. Till next time, this is your old pal Jerb saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and I was listening to one the other day that talked about politics. But my friends, oh yes. This is the only show that dares to talk about all three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>